rated movies. This is a movie podcast by two guys who used to date, and now they don't. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Whedon. I'm the other one of your hosts, Matthew Fisher. Now, instead of dating, we ask for money. Money! Let it rain from heaven. Pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, bills. Of Uh, all denominations. I'll even accept twos, even though I hate them. Why? Eh, They're just annoying to spend. Unless you're tipping a stripper. (laughs) Hold on. I feel like there's a story there. When I went to Portland, our our sister city down south, I went to a bar. It wasn't Silverado. It was the other one that I can't remember the name of that had like male strippers. Mm -hmm. And they only gave you change in twos rather than ones. And I'm like, oh, that's mm. smart because then that's what you have to tip the dancers. Mm, trickle down strippernomics. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, I hate them. Why don't you like? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't care enough to actually take up precious podcasting time. Okay. Yeah, you have something much more pressing, I'm sure. Yeah. So remember when you were a kid and you'd make fortune tellers? Yes. If you were to make one now, what would the fortunes be when you flip them up? These are things that keep you up at night. (laughs) Like if you were to get all your girlfriends over Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you were to have a sleepover and you made fortune tellers and and made all all your girlfriends pick it. Well, in elementary school, one of them was you are gay. (laughs) That one. (laughs) Nix that. That one's not going to work. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Different times. Different times. Okay. Here's a positive one. You will pay off your student debt. <laughs> wow. <laughs> really hitting that adult <laughs> ball right out of the park here. Um, I would also do, um, you will one day own a house. <laughs> <laughs> I would make those very hard to get, both of those. <laughs> wow. So your your version of, of the fortune teller is basically the game of life. <laughs> Huh? Uh, except that you make, uh, I, if I were to redo the game of life now, I would make just home ownership and loan debt just unachievable. <laughs> but the you idea get, is... You're stuck in a circle of just like paying, paying, <laughs> yeah. paying. Yeah. There's, you can't actually get to like the finish spot. Right, like, yeah. You just... always get diverted back. Uh-huh. And then after like 20 turns, you die. <laughs> <laughs> I should say real fast, uh, Matt, when he said fortune teller, he made the like universal like paper folded thing where you open one, open on the, on the Z axis, then open on the X axis. Right. Like the little mouth that looked like a snapdragon or something. You've seen them, but I just had to describe that. Yeah. Let's see. What what, what would be a really fun one? Um, You will do a cover of... I've got you, babe, with Bjork. <laughs> I've got you, babe. Yeah, Sunny and Cher. Yeah, but with with Bjork. Bjork. Sure. Oof. Her husband does weird stuff. Who's she married to these days? Some conceptual artist that like makes videos that make give me nightmares. Not the guy who did like the Cremester Cycle anymore. They were married or dating for a long time. Mm, maybe it was. Mm. I haven't kept up on my, my Bjork news in a while. Mm, I know they d- they divorced slash broke up. I think dating Bjork would be hard. You're gonna have to put in that drop of uh, the not actually her, but uh, the SNL celebrity Jeopardy. I throw knickers into the oven, and it's music. Crash, boom, bang, chicken, She's so easy to make fun of, but you know what? She's a fucking talent. I love her. Yeah, part of me just thinks it's like 
coincidental though that she happens to be talented like if she didn't have such a magnificent voice mm. i think we'd all find her intolerable <laughs> i mean it's possible she has a huge personality mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. yeah big career that one she did the closing credits for being john malkovich which oh that's su- right surprised me i did not remember that yeah, i didn't remember that either going back to last week's episode she did a movie with that guy who did the cremester cycle okay i have to look it up hold on what's his name <laughs> i almost feel like his name is matthew i'm probably really wrong on that but uh something about it just speaks to me matt it is a matthew Matthew Barney. Matthew Barney, yes. Oh. Have you seen any of the Cremaster movies? Uh, no, but I, I've seen stills and images of it, and I'm, it's one of those things, like, I look at it, I'm like, no thanks. I watched the third one, which is the one that everybody says is the most accessible slash best one. Okay. At a midnight showing at the Egyptian several years ago. Oh. It is a three-hour movie. <laughs> what? Three-hour art movie at midnight not a great combo. No. I'm just gonna tell you right now. We got out. It was like four a.m. I'm walking through the streets after seeing this crazy. It was insane. Like he was like he was literally like repelling through the Guggenheim in this movie. Like huh. it was insane. Very visually striking, though. I think I think about it a lot. I wish I'd seen the whole coming up next week on X Rated. Yeah, <laughs> it's very arty. Um, but he did do a full on like feature length movie with Bjork when they were married slash dating yeah I just I remember because I think one of like the images from one of his movies was like the album cover like she did like the songs or some of the soundtrack or the score or something like that and a still from the movie was used as the album cover for it and I just remember looking at me like nope don't want to watch that let's see if I can find the Bjork one uh do 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 Drawing Restraint was the one he did with her. Oh, no, and I think that was, yeah, that was the album that had the image. No, was it Drawing Restraint or was it Drawing Restraint 9? It was Drawing Restraint 9. Wow, good for you. I knew that there was a 9 in there. That was the only thing that I remembered. But, uh, and I'll post this on wherever we post stuff. Uh, we'll post it on Patreon, you know. Um. <laughs> Under a paywall. If you pay money, you can see what we're talking about. Don't Google it. <laughs> Yeah, the album cover for Drawing Restraint 9, I looked at that, and I'm like, mm, oh. you know, I'm fine not watching that. Pass. <laughs> yeah. What's in that hose, you think? I don't know. Why does this person look like a kabuki clown? <laughs> I'm just... These are questions I don't want answered. Sure. Yeah, I understand. I remember there was a lot of, like, gloopy shoveling of gloop in the Guggenheim in the Cremaster one. And I remember Gloopy when I watched... Gloopy gloop in the Guggenheim? Yeah. More like the Gloopenheim, am I right? <laughs> yeah. You like the laziest of puns that I can come up with? Uh... I I just was expecting Guggen Gloop. So. <laughs> Gloopenheim took me off guard. That's all. I want to take this time to thank all of our Patreon subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly the type of hot quality pod that you're paying for. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
because yeah. we've been talking <laughs> have about we, Bjork. <laughs> have we not eaten up enough time? Do you know what? Bjork has worked with lots of people, not just Matthew Barney. There, there's, a, there's a very famous director that she worked with by the name of uh, Lars von Trier. Yeah, the, you know, she swore off movies after that. Yeah, because he really fucked her up in Dancer in the Dark. That's the movie he did with her. <laughs> yes. But today we're covering our first Lars von Trier. Today's movie is the 2019 film, The House That Jack Built. Directed by Lars von Trier. Now, Lars von Trier, and rightfully so, is a very polarizing director. I don't fault anyone for not liking his movies. Because they're not easy. They're not easy. These are no Sunday morning movies. (laughs) Yeah. But I think his movies are incredibly interesting. I think that they are more complex than I think people really give them credit for. I've waited a long time to do a Lars von Trier movie because if push came to shove, I would say he's my favorite director. And if someone were, you you can't like Lars von Trier, he's a sexist asshole, blah, 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 blah. Be like, "Mm, yeah, maybe. Like, and I also feel like Lars von Trier would agree with you. Like, I just want to say real fast, put a big pin in your favorite director thing because I have a movie coming up this season that's from my favorite director. I've seen lots of Lars Ventures movies. Yeah. I like oh God, I keep saying that. I yeah, nobody likes a the, Lars yeah, Venture movie. You can't movies. like these movies. <laughs> They're very interesting mm-hmm. and there's lots to chew on, lots to think about. So, I guess in that respect I like what he does. The movies themselves are never a joy to watch. I never want to be like, mm, I'm just going to put on Dogville and like uh-huh. spend the night, you know, <laughs> cuddle up on the couch. Uh, for the record, I have definitely done movie nights with friends on Dogville. Oh, so God. Uh, just to tell you what my circle of friends is like. Uh, I mean, Bettina McKelvey is constantly posting that fucking end of Melancholia oh. <laughs> movie and being like, it feels so good. And then like, she's not wrong, yeah. but like, it's... God, it's he just has a certain nihilism that is satisfying, but not enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, any criticism that you hurl at him is probably true, but you can't say that he makes boring movies necessarily. Like, even if you're bored by the movie, it's only because I feel like you're choosing not to engage with what he's putting out there, which understandably a lot of times he's putting out like things that are uncomfortable to engage with oh yeah it turns off a lot of people easily quickly yeah and i get that like i don't fault people for not wanting to i do think that if you choose not to you're missing out you are like there are rewards to be found by finishing his movies that said (laughs) I got a lot of thoughts about today's movie. Well, that's good. That's good. You know, as I mentioned at the tail end of the show last week, I was like, you know, I only saw it the one time. I don't know if there's enough meat on, in this movie to actually make for a full podcast. But then when I watched it last night, I was like, you know, I think there is. I think there's enough here that we can talk about it. There's plenty here. There's plenty here. Um, I was confused about your choice to make it a meta movie for 
a good hour and a half of it. But it does. It, it comes around. It comes around. But like there was a minute there where I was like, I don't think he understood the assignments. <laughs> <laughs> I think the meta elements up until, say, like between like incident four and five, where at that point we're seeing like clips from previous Lars von Trier movies. The, the aforementioned end of Melancholia. Yeah. One mel- of them. Melancholia is in there. But there is a meditation on creativity and creation that I think rings very true to, say, a director or someone of that ilk. Well, and specifically Lars von Trier's idea of equating provocation and violence with love and empathy. Mm -hmm. Like, why is one valued over the other? Some people claim that the atrocities we commit in our fiction are those inner desires which we cannot commit in our controlled civilization. So they are expressed instead through our art. I think it's between Incidents 4 and 5 when they're talking about the noble rot, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is one of the settings on your bidet. Um, (laughs) Don't do that one. (laughs) (laughs) Where they talk about how when you're making wine and you will leave grapes out much longer than they're supposed to expose them to the elements longer than they're molding. They mold or or, uh, freeze and shrivel, but that does something to the sugar inside the grape, and it has an effect on on the wine in the end of things. Uh, And that if this type of destruction or decay or, or abuse towards the grape can create a type of wine that is coveted, why can't we do that in other forms of life? You could say about all three processes that it's the breakdown that lifts the living grape up to be part of an artwork. You can view the processes that start in a human being after death in the same manner. That's the sort of like heady nugs that I'm here for. Like, I love that sort of philosophical talk. Okay. <laughs> And you're interested in wine making? No, yeah, no, I'm with you, I'm with you. I am too, like, I get conflicted about his arguments when he starts being like, isn't it amazing that the Nazis made planes and the planes actually had this, like, siren that, like, when you think of dive bombers, you hear that sound of, like, and, like, it wouldn't be there, but the only reason it is is because... They wanted to inflict psychological horror onto people. I understand the argument that it's like, isn't it amazing that humans came up with this thing? Like, they engineered it specifically to torture other humans. Like, yeah, I get you. That's awesome that somebody (laughs) came up with that idea and it's really fucking terrifying and it really, like, causes people lots of uh, PTSD. But then I'm also like... Fuck those people, you know, like I don't think that equating that kind of mental energy with what could also be turned into something that's artistic is worthy of my time. But then, I mean, here I'm I watch this whole movie and I'm like, well, that's kind of what he's doing. Also, he's like, look at me. I'm poking you in the eye with things that are going to piss you off. purposely triggering you Yeah, many times in this movie. And I'm kind of like, well, I also 
you know, like this is these these are the questions he raises. He raises them in every movie. And I think that that's what makes this one kind of interesting. And I think that's why he brings up his own movies, because it's like, is this all I have to offer is what he's kind of saying. And maybe not to jump too far ahead, but like he's saying, like, is do all I have to offer as an artist is provocation. And, you know, that's something that I think Lars von Trude genuinely wrestles with. He's like, is the only way that I can get an emotional reaction out of people is to, like, show terrible things to otherwise nice people. Like, it's the exact thing that, like, Todd Salons tries to go against. He, he, you know, his quote is like, oh, you give a nice person cancer. Bam, they're sympathetic. And, you know, Lars von Trier, it's like, oh, here's this nice lady. Let's have her, like, raped and beaten and, like, murdered for two and a half hours. And uh, then she'll die and we'll all walk away sad. Yeah. Um. I mean, there's more to his movies than that. But Well, this uh, one specifically, I think he plays with it, especially in the very end. Well, but. this is the first of his English-speaking movies in over 20 years to star a man, which is sort of plays into it. And I think it's because Jack, played by Matt Dillon, is supposed to be a proxy for Lars himself more so than the heroines in his other movies. Lars von Trier has a very complicated relationship with women. He was raised in a very unorthodox manner and has the reverse trajectory of his religiosity that I think most people have, where he was raised in this communist atheist commune, uh, a nudist commune. Uh, and he says that now that uh, you could do anything you want except uh, have feelings or pray. And <laughs> at some point, his mother got, you know, very ill. And on her deathbed, she revealed to him that the person that he thought was his father was not actually his father. He then sought down his real father. His real father did not give a shit about him and had wanted nothing to do with him. And this was when he switched gears. Uh, Lars von Trier's er- early movies are very stylish, very in the, the vein of German expressionism. And then this shit happened and he made Breaking the Waves, which is very stripped down. The, the, after this was the Dog Me 95 movement. And thankfully he's moved past that. But, you know, Lars von Trier is needlessly defiant. But he has a philosophy about art that I really respond to that it's not about what you can do or what you do do. It's, yeah, you, <laughs> sorry. I'm going to use that poop uh, sound from, uh, there's something about Kevin. <laughs> there's something about Kevin. <laughs> that Carly Ke- Brothers Kevin's movie. jerking off, looking at his mother, and then <laughs> wipes the cum in his ben hair. Ben Stiller's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch that mashup. Why aren't there movie mashups? By the way, we, we have know. music mashups. Sorry, <laughs> uh, but he he's about constraining himself, and he has a documentary called "The Five Obstructions" that, right. that really goes into it. That that's pretty interesting too. And I, I appreciate that aspect of his filmmaking. I think that it's important for artists to give themselves boundaries like that. Otherwise. I could just kind of feel like you'll get nothing done. You know, you say, you know, it's never done. It's just due. And I, I feel like that it's a good discipline to have to give yourself constraints. Otherwise, you're just going to end up like Julie Taymor and your Green Goblin is going to get caught in the wires while your fucking Tempest movie is just a big hot mess of CG. 
I respect his ability to provoke. And I think that this movie is an important chapter in his story because it's him recognizing the limitations of that. Mm -hmm. Because after we see this, the scenes of um, Jack talking about like, what is art and like, what is an art decay, blah, 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 blah. And we see like those scenes from the Lars von Trier movies. The next part shows Jack trying to do the, mass murder of like five guys with like one bullet like the nazis did mm-hmm. and like it's a it's a bumbling it's a whole issue yeah the whole thing well uh, no i i thought about because I, I i always attributed this to elaine may but i don't know if she actually said it but it's like drama is like someone takes a gun and like shoots themselves with it and comedy is like someone takes a gun and like tries to shoot themselves with it but realizes that the gun is empty and then they have to go get bullets but the bullets they have aren't the right size so yeah, then they have to it's go all to that. the bullet store and buy more bullets so they can go home and kill themselves like yeah like comedies in those small details and it's like that's kind of what happens right. in incident number five and he just cannot kill these guys and he doesn't actually which mm-hmm. is kind of fun but um when he gets into that trailer with that dude who has the gun. Yeah. Yesterday, the police visited all. And then me, with lights and sirens, to get you. It's over now, Jack. I mean, I've seen Lange Ventures movies before. I was just like, there's no way this guy's going to win. There was no tension in any of those camper scenes for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it was because he pointed out that it's like, these are the movies I make. And like, if you've made it this far into the movie, you know that this is how I'm going to fuck with you. And I was just like watching that, that whole thing. And then like when the police officer finally like comes up and is like, there's this whole beautiful dramatic shot of like the like uh camera, mo- like moving to the right. And then like the police car pulls up and you're like, I still felt nothing. Like I was like that police car is gonna show up. That they're gonna he's gonna die. That policeman's gonna die, and then we're gonna like the he's gonna get back there and try and shoot those people. It's interesting to be like, as a movie watcher, you know, have certain expectations about around like police showing up, and then like you know these like uh these moments, and know that like in this film in his universe. That's not what's going to happen. It, I mean, it, it's interesting that you bring up like expectations because, like, in this incident, as the chapters are called in this movie, it's like this whole portion plays into our expectations. It's doing what we think it's going to do, or, or, or you know, or at least the way that you thought it was going to go. But then we get back to his his you know meat locker where he keeps all of his bodies and victims. And to me, I think it confounds expectations a little bit. There's the the police officers welding in. But then he's able in. to open the door finally. Y- yeah, finally. And then you know Bruno Ganz is in there, and uh, you know we have Bruno Ganz as a narrator that Jack is talking to through this whole movie, but we don't see him. We don't know who he is. We don't know have any idea what their relationship is. But this is when you know the titular house that Jack built actually comes in. And I would be hard-pressed to think that you would be able to predict what happens, like, once he goes into the hole in the house. And so the idea that that this incident begins with almost stereotypical expectations being met, to have it turn into something that I really don't think someone could 
predict. It's not a, a screen. There's not a lot of screenwriting tropes in the second half of this incident. Sure. You wouldn't be able to predict the um, catabasis. <laughs> okay. Catabasis. I mean, yes. The last half hour, 45 minutes is insane. But we should talk about the first parts before we get to that. So, okay. like, it's split up into five incidents and an epilogue. And it's basically about a serial killer who is talking to someone. We don't know. We figure it out later. But it's like he's talking to them about specific murders that he's done because he's a serial killer, uh, how he justified them, where they play out in his life as a serial murderer. Each one is a little different and a little more upsetting. I was going to say, was this movie more or less funny than you were expecting it to be? It was about as funny as I thought it would be. <laughs> okay. Because okay. You, you had primed me with whatever episode. I, I want to say it was the victim episode where you talked about this. Okay. Um, that it was kind of funny. And then I also know that Lars von Trier is not without a sense of humor. So I knew that there would be like funny elements to it. There were some moments where I got upset. True. But... I felt the humor a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, the the first incidents with him and Uma Thurman. Looking like Kate Blanchett from Carol. <laughs> okay. I was wondering, I was like, is this like his comment on like, I hate these kind of movies? Uh, like, I, mm, I don't think so, because Uma Thurman is a specific kind of brand of annoying here. Okay. Like, I feel like he's just making fun of like your stereotypical, like, I don't know how to work a tire iron blonde woman i need to speak to the manager mm-hmm. um she strikes me as like the type of woman who's gotten largely by on her looks in life because she says just obnoxious sort of prodding things to jack what i said earlier about you looking like a serial killer no 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 you don't have the disposition for that sort of thing <laughs> you're way too much of a wimp to murder anyone this kind of plays with expectations too, because you kind of just expect Jack to kill her. There's none. It takes l- forever. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Like he's actually kind of doing the good deed of driving her into town, taking her to the mechanic, getting her Jack fixed, taking her back to the car, and really, like it's only because she gets so obnoxious and like gets on his nerves that he kills her. Not that that's justification. <sighs> I'm glad you said that. The same breath. <laughs> But she could have flagged him down, and if she'd been like, oh, thanks for the ride, and just kind of kept her mouth shut, she would have been alive. Mm-hmm. It's like Curb Your Enthusiasm, where it's just like, she's, let she's it pr- go. She's prying defeat out of the jaws of victory. Yeah, let it go, hun. Yeah. Let it go. Uh, I also want to talk up Uma Thurman's comedic chops, because she was also in Nymphomaniac, the previous Lars von Trier movie. Oh, okay. I didn't watch Nymphomaniac. Her scene in Nymphomaniac is, is scene-stealingly funny. And, you know, for all the shit that Lars von Trier gets about being misogynistic, he does have a handful of women who will work with him over and over again. Uma Thurman came back. Uh, I mean, Charlotte Gainsbourg, of course, is a bitter ender. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and... Of course, in Incident 2... <laughs> we have to talk about Shaban Fallen Hogan! Okay. Right. So now you're... Now, now what are you? Like, what's your... What's your rank now? So she's a character actress. We talked about her way back in, uh... 
142. <laughs> yeah. Two episodes uh, ago. There's something about Kevin. And she's been in everything from episodes of Seinfeld and Men in Black to Lars von Trier movies. And she's been in a number of Lars von Trier movies. Yeah. And she's in she's, this one. <laughs> she's good. She's good. And she was the, the boss that Tilda Swinton goes to work for in There's Something About Kevin. Right. Um, which is what I'm calling that movie from now on. So there's incident two revolves around the OCD, which never really comes back into the movie, but it does kind of make for a little comical murder. Yeah. Hers is kind of funny. I also think it's a good cinematic depiction of OCD. Like he gets in his car and it's just the image of him like, pulling up a rug where obviously there could be no no blood, blood. <laughs> but it's like the thought that there might be blood there and he's like i gotta go clean drive some crazy i gotta yeah. go clean it up goes and cleans it up goes back out to the car and then suddenly he gets this image that like behind a, a like a picture on the wall there's droplets there's of blood. no way they could be or like under the stool that he just cleaned yeah already. exactly yeah. this is what ocd must be like and it yeah i mean I don't necessarily suffer from OCD, but there are certain times where I'm just like, uh, did I lock my front door? Sure. Lots of people and, like, have that. Yeah. Suddenly I have to like go back and check and make sure that my door is locked. And it always is. Of course it is. You do it every time. Yeah. 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 So yeah, there's this whole thing, you know, he chokes her, but she doesn't quite die. And then he has to go back for more. And then yeah, just the OCD around him cleaning up the crime scene. You know, I saw this movie in theaters. It was a very limited showing of just one night, and the audience was was there for it. They were all uh, 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 laughing at all the right moments. I was gonna say this. you've seen you've only seen the director's cut. I don't know if I saw the R-rated version. The director's or not. cut is one minute longer. Well, what's that minute I missed? I don't know. I don't know, but it's probably just more boob cutting. Why did no one call him out on his boob wallet? <laughs> That's a question I have. Uh, yeah, the audience was was on board when I saw it in theaters. So, you know, the first incident, you know, funny, grisly. It's it's what you think a, a, a movie about a serial killer will be, roughly. Yeah. Second one's a little funnier, a little less grisly. Then we get to the third incident. Yeah, I think you mentioned when you told me about this uh, the first time that um, this was when most people walked out. Yeah. So, starts out innocent enough. You know, a picnic in the, in a field in the forest. And then we start getting into bloodhounds and taxidermy. Schweitzer? And Schweitz, Schweitzen? Whatever. Whatever it is. Schweiss. Then it cuts back and suddenly Jack is hunting people for sport with a sniper rifle. Or not a, maybe not necessarily a sniper rifle. Some kind of rifle. rifle. Yeah. And, I mean, this includes very young children. Well, and he rationalizes it in the way that it's like, well, when you're hunting and you're killing deer... You typically shoot at the deer starting with the rear one, based on the fact that the two older animals can survive without the young one. Whereas, if you shot the mother first and didn't get the others... Both fawns would probably not survive. So you want to kill the kids first and then the mom last. Mm-hmm. Which is what he does. Which is what he does. <laughs> yeah, killing children. Oof. But that also means that the mother witnesses the children being 
picked off first. Yeah. And we see it, you know, sort of Manchurian candidate style, like through the scope of the rifle. It was rough to see that one kid like poke his head out after his brother had died and then just see him like move the scope over and the kid like look at the gun. Uh-huh. And then the next thing you hear is just like a shot and then the mom scream. Yeah. And that was not an easy moment. It it's a hard tonal shift in this incident. I want to say the the duck abuse is also in there. Like re- somewhere in there. Yeah, I think it's at the tail end of incident three. Okay. Yeah, so we get the infanticide, and then we get him, the wounded mother trying to escape, and him hunting her down and forcing her to feed pie to her dead child's corpse. Yeah, this is where people were walking out, and I completely understand why. I get like, it. There's. Yeah. N- if you're sensitive to this sort of thing, then this is really forcing a lot on you. Like, so speaking of the duckling scene, longtime listeners will know I don't handle han- animal cruelty. I was well. surprised when I saw the scene too, thinking like, Matt, this is way off brand for you. And I really like in the theaters, I was like white knuckling it through the end credits. I was like, I need to see the no animals were harmed during the making of this movie. Cause if there's not like, I don't think I can enjoy this movie as fiction. Sure. And there is, it's there. Yeah. They actually released a statement cause people were like, how the fuck was this it made? It looks very convincing. Apparently it's movie magic. And I'm just going to have to trust PETA on this one because I was upset. Yeah. <laughs> it's really upsetting. He okay for people who haven't seen this movie. Spoiler, I suppose. Plug your ears if you're sensitive. He takes a little baby duckling, a little little fledgling, little like fluffy white and yellow duck. This child picks it up, takes a pair of um, looks like pruning like, shears, yeah. and cuts off one of its legs, and then puts it back in the water, and then it drowns. And you see blood spurt. You see the leg come off. You see him cut it off. It's all there. It's very shocking. It is very upsetting. It's super upsetting. I mean, PETA put out a statement saying that they appreciated the idea that Lars put it in the movie to show that people who abuse animals have have warped sense of morality or, or, or ethics cause, and that they'll often harm humans later in sure. life. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I mean, I guess I'm on board with all of it. I hated seeing it. It was... It's very upsetting. I always tell myself that, that like, <laughs> infanticide on screen, to most people, is how I view animal abuse on screen. Sure. But even me, who's usually, you know, heartless and soulless towards abuse towards kids on screen... I mean, not... I don't want to say heartless. Like, it, it'll it'll get to me, but... I felt more for the ducklings than I did for the kids. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> and, I mean, what does that say about us? But, I mean, well, I think that it's because... we care about animals? Well, I was going to say, obviously, they're not killing kids for the sake of entertainment, but there is a part of us that's like, they might have harmed animals yeah, for the sake of entertainment. It's possible, like, when you watch it, because of how realistic it looks, I was wondering, I was like, did he actually just let some child cut a duck's leg off? Yeah. For the sake of cinema, which, I mean, that speaks to him as a director because, like, you wonder 
would he really do that just to get under your skin enough that like you were white knuckling it i was white knuckling it it's like that says something about him as a director like the craft of his filmmaking but also the idea that he he knows how audiences will respond to stimuli sure other directors i wouldn't think twice about like watching like an animal like mutilation or something right like like, if if steven spielberg had this in his movie we wouldn't think about it but there's something about lars von trier that we're like maybe he did yeah maybe he really did this just to piss us off and like get some kind of reaction out of us yeah and then he would justify it through some like artistic means like you wonder yeah you have to wonder and that is sort of a meta element because it's a lars von trier movie we Uh. think he might have actually harmed that duckling. Well, and that goes back to when I was talking about after he shows those like scenes of his movies and then they're in that trailer. I'm like, because this is a Lars von Trier movie, I know that that guy's going to die. Mm-hmm. Like, and it almost feels like purpose. Like if you are a fan of his movies and or fan, whatever, if, if you've seen enough of his movies, you know that Jack's going to get out of the situation. Yeah, it's not going to it end It robs here. it of all... It's uh, oh, normally it, it, intended like, yeah, it's cinematic. Not, it, it's not a standoff. Tension. It doesn't feel like this is. There's nothing about it that where like this is where the movie ends or anything like that. Like you know that that it's gonna keep going. And in any other movie, like regular movie that you're watching, you would feel that tension. I, and like what makes that scene interesting to me is like because he's pointed out that like oh it's one of my movies. I knew that, like, well, that's not going to happen. Yeah. I, and so, like, I felt zero tension, which is odd because in cinematically, from what I've been trained to think, I should feel tense in that moment. And, and, and also, like, a little relief. Like, oh, this is over. Mm-hmm. But because I know who's making this movie and how he does it, I felt nothing. Yeah. I felt very, like... Okay, let's get this over with. I mean, it's also like these are characters, like the dude in the trailer is like a character that we've just been introduced to, really. Of course. Like, we have no emotional connection to him. But, you know, I mean, the movie that he could have written it that it ended there in like a shootout or something like that, but he goes for something completely different than that. Mm. So people started walking out at the, the child hunting scene, but people really walked out during the taxidermy scene. Yeah, I'll bet. Like, the forcing the smile onto the kid, people walked out on that scene. See, that didn't bother me so much because, like, the kid's dead. <laughs> yeah, but... Why is the, that upsetting? It's this grotesque Joker oh, smile I mean, on it is, him, but and like... his leg is shot off and then, like, hobbled back onto the rest of his body, like... <sighs> I find... Just I that find... image of... A six-year-old with with you know uh, uh, like wooden stakes in his cheeks to make it look like he's smiling and sure I mean it it it's something else and it also just all the levity of like the first two incidents is just completely sucked out by incident three yeah it gets grotesque I don't know what to say about me that like. I don't care what you do to a corpse. Like, it's dead. Yeah. Like, whatever. It's a trophy. Yeah. Yeah. I love that trophy shot, by the way. Mm. Like, that was... And this is, you know, Von Trier to a T. Like, the grotesque shot beautifully. (laughs) Like, that shot, it starts with, like, 
it's facing on like whatever axis that is like straight on and then it like tilts up and goes so high and you see it and I'm yeah. like, like what you're seeing is grotesque but the way it's filmed and how beautiful the shot is yeah makes it hard to feel that grotesquery yeah, it's like, the humans and it's like a bunch of ravens or crows or something like that around yeah. it and it's fascinating to me because he's like what we're seeing aesthetically doesn't match to what we should be feeling uh, emotionally mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. he's he loves like digging into those two things yeah i mean he's not one to pull a punch for these sorts of things and to do this big crane shot which is you know usually a a heroic shot yeah it's a mix of emotions i guess yeah it's beautiful i loved that shot and i yeah i mean there's a lot of beautiful cinematography in this whole movie it has very naturalistic lighting that's also super flattering i mean i feel the same way about antichrist and i oh sure the movie's tough (laughs) (laughs) so that's incident three yeah in a nutshell um not to be too linear about it but then incident four which this incident makes me just think that it's like every true crime podcast like this is the template for it yeah what's the actress name is it riley keogh is that how you pronounce it I mean, it starts out him talking about how, you know, I loved her more than a psychopath should be able to love someone. And then, of course, it ends with her slicing her boobs off. Yeah. Breast purse. Uh, Breast purse. But he does the Ted Bundy thing where he's got a crutch and a piece of luggage and suddenly everyone thinks he's the nice guy. He also pulls a Jeffrey Dahmer in this one where one of his victims like ran out and like talked to the police and he came down and was like, sorry, we've been drinking. Oh, was that a Dahmer thing? Yeah. And the police officer was like, you guys go home. Oh yeah. Which is also this one. So So it is very true crimey, Mm -hmm. but he's on this date with this girl and they've presumably been seeing each other for a while because he likes her and the date starts out. Okay. A little awkward, but you know, I've been on awkward dates before. And then it kind of like takes a turn all at once when he starts calling her simple. You know I hate it when you call me simple. My name is Jacqueline. Jacqueline? Did old Mr. and Mrs. Simple really have that vivid an imagination? Oh, that's so degrading. And this is one of those scenes where I'm like, oh, someone's going to think that Lars von Trier is super sexist because of this. Like the way that this plays out. But isn't he just, like, making you try to think that? Well, because I was also thinking, it was like, but isn't it just that all the men in this woman's life are horrible, including the police officer that she asks for help? Sure. Who does not believe her and brushes her off? He's like, have you been drinking was his first question. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like, well, what were you wearing? Like, that sort of mentality about it. But then... There's like a look on her face when things are starting to get real. And I I think that that the actress does it really well because she looks like she has this look on her face where you can see that she doesn't think that what is happening is what we all know is going to happen. Mm -hmm. She has this look of, I'm just reading the situation wrong. I'm sure that he's not going to harm me. And... But we, the audience, know that he is. Right. I think that's what allows women to get 
into those situations is like they try and fight off their instinct. They're like, oh, this person's trying to kill me. Oh, no, no, I'm just interpreting the, their body language wrong. So they stick around in these bad situations longer than they ought to. And like, that's what I read from her face. She's like, oh, no, this isn't actually as bad as I think it is. And then it's exactly as bad as she thinks that it is. Yeah. And then screaming does nothing. That's one of those hard truths of the movie. Like she screams, he screams for her. Bangs on the door. The Mr. Sophistication is here. Yeah. And nothing. And, you know, he yells out like, no one wants to help you. You can scream from now until Christmas Eve. And the only answer you'll get is the deafening silence that you're hearing right now. He talks about how he's never been punished. And a lot of like that is because he can do things roughly out in the open and nobody stops him. He fucking drags um, Shaban Fallon Hogan. <laughs> and uh, there's a huge like blood line trail because her and... skull is being dragged on the pavement. Yeah, like ground down and it, you know, rains away. So, um, it's funnier than it sounds, listeners. (laughs) I'm just going to push fast forward now. We have to talk about the last epilogue part of this. So, and which is also a very meta part of it because the house that Jack builds, which true to form is a house made out of dead bodies. Like the, the, the art that Jack partakes in is the house that he will live in he thought he wanted to build like an actual house and he tried cinder blocks he tried wood and like it never worked and he talks about how the material never really conformed to his will I spoke to him yeah and and that the material you know is just as important and you have to have a connection and i kind of feel like that's a director talking about the actors or the crew Uh, Or just the material in general. Especially the way that he said, like, the material didn't bend to my will, or he he says something like that. And I kind of feel like that's working with actors who, you know, they come with their own baggage or their own idea of the part and might resist. But so there's this house made out of dead people that, you know, and this is sort of a strange aspect like at this point we don't really know what's real because he opens the store in the in the freezer that he hadn't been able to open before and there's a person in there bruno gans who's been talking to him the whole time and so it's like well is this real is this fantasy we don't really know what then you know he's in this house that's made out of cadavers and then there's a hole inside the house that he crawls down inside of and suddenly it's like different it's like a Dante's Inferno situation going on. Which catabasis is what they call the epilogue. Catabasis. Which just means like descent or um go down. So we had seen, you know, previously we had seen clips of large Von Trier movies, which I'm I'm curious to know how someone watching the movie if this was your first Lars von Trier what would you feel about those clips? I was thinking that too, like not knowing going in that this was a Lodge Von Trier movie. You know, honestly, there's lots of references that I didn't know. Like he's like, 
oh, here's some paintings da, 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 of like things when while they're talking about stuff with Verge. Mm-hmm. Where I'm just like, I don't know that painting. I don't know any. I have no point of reference. For All that. their shit about architecture and like gothic architecture versus like different types of ceilings just and kind of shit. Trust that, like, just, oh, he knows uh, what he's talking he about. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So like, if this was your first Lars von Trier, I think that you would also just like sort of accept the fact that like when he's talking about like, oh, movies that are about death and decay, but also like their art, like you just accept like whoever made these movies, they must be what he's talking about. Yeah. I assume that's what you would think. Yeah. I I, I don't know. It's like, like, I knew immediately. I was like, oh, these are Lars von Trier's movies. He's talking about himself. Yeah. But you know, when he goes into that hole, the movie takes a very different tone. Like it's a very different movie. For like the last ten minutes or so, yeah. I mean, it's not you just. You could say it in that way. I would also say it's a radical shift <laughs> in a uh, movie. Well, like be- because the the cinematography, like the lenses that they use, the lighting design, it's very reminiscent of other Lars von Trier movies. Like there's portions of this, the last bits that look like Antichrist. There's portions of the last bits that look like his first feature length movie element of crime. Like it shifts like the lens and the lighting to look like other Lars von Trier movies. And it also is a radical shift from what feels like, and I don't want to call it realism, but like, but I mean, it is the first like four fifths of this movie feel like they could happen in some sort of real world Mm -hmm. and everything during the epilogue is like no this none of this feels like yeah this all feels artistic this feels expressionistic like there's nothing realistic going on it feels like a totally different movie in like once they crawl down into this you know cavern or whatever Mm -hmm. i mean even the ending of the movie kind of feels like the ending of a different movie well, and like, well, that's the thing is like, okay, so he goes through these levels of hell, gets to the bottom one, and there's like a broken bridge. And like on the other side of that broken bridge, he could, there's stairs going up, which like maybe leads to heaven or something. Whatever or you want to think. Out of this place, out of least, wherever, yeah. whatever hell he's in. But Jack is like, Isn't it possible to climb all the way around? This way, make it over to the other side. Why did you have tried, but I have to say, never successfully. And Jack, in his hubris, is like, oh, I can do it. So the last scene of the movie is him trying to climb around this like circular shape so he can get to the top of the stairs. And I have a... Mm, I'm not going to call it a big question, but I think it's a hu- it's a huge question. <laughs> what were you feeling in that moment? Boy, I, I you know, by the time I'm you know, this is my second viewing of the movie, I just don't know. Like we were talking about this last week with with being John Malkovich and how the the end of the movie suddenly made me realize that that Craig Schwartz was the villain and that the people who uh, who are rewarded are the ones who grew emotionally. And in this one, I'm just like, I don't know. Maybe the, the temptation of being able to achieve your goals is like the ultimate torture. And that 
you'll never actually get there, but you have to try is like the moral of these things. Like second viewing, and I've thought about it a lot, and I, I really don't know what I'm supposed to feel by the ending or if it's happy or sad or, or what. I was very conflicted too. I felt, again, no tension because knowing that this is a Lars von Trier movie, I'm like, either A, this person's going to die or B, they're going to make it. But what makes it interesting is that, like, I was prepared to accept either way. Like, Jack is our protagonist and the way it's filmed, like, it's very treacherous. Like, Like, someone who's been trained in cinema, you're like, oh, I should feel bad for him because, like, he could fall. And it's like... But we don't but, feel bad but for him. But I don't him. care about this guy. Yeah. I hate him. He's terrible. He's a, mur- he's a serial we, we, murderer. Yeah, we, we but, spent the whole movie with him. We don't really sympathize with him. We're never on his side. But in that moment, you because we've been trained in cinema to feel, like, you know, tension when somebody could fall in these moments... I felt those and I like I kept having to check those moments while watching because I'm like no I don't care about Jack I don't and when he dies eventually he loses his grip uh falls into the void it's 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 neutral almost yeah I I would almost say it's ultimately satisfying like how do you feel when a wicked person dies and especially after we've been trained in cinema to not feel good about somebody trying to accomplish something and then failing. Yeah. You know, like that's what that's the metaphor we're seeing. Even if it's somebody we hate, do I feel bad? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. I think that's the moral of it's mostly. I mean, it's really something to chew on with this. Like, you know. Lars is a very deliberate director. He, the, the Nothing really seems arbitrary in his choices. No, not at all. And I think he knows how the audience is feeling about Jack by the time we get here. And you almost sympathize with him watching him go through all these layers of hell. And we even get that moment where he's like looking at the Elysian fields. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, he does. He has a little bit of remorse. Like you almost want to sympathize. Yeah. But then, like, when he's actually climbing through the things, I'm like, okay, well, I feel the tension of somebody climbing and striving for something, but do I care about Jack himself? No. I mean, no. The actual character? No, not really. When I think about who's actually going through this turmoil, I don't care about him, but the cinematicness of it and the way he's Von Trier has presented it, I can't help but, like, feel my heart race. Yeah, I mean... There's little things leading up to it, like there's that shot of like them on like the boat or whatever, and it's like the super slow motion. Oh, I, it's beautiful. But it it also makes Jack kind of look like a hero. Yeah. And, you know, we obviously don't feel that way about him for 95% of the movie, but then <laughs> it just shoots him like he's a heroic figure. Presents and him away. Yeah. we feel differently about him all of a sudden. Yeah, it's... There's a lot of conflicting things, and I don't know if there's a, a an answer to how we're actually supposed to feel or what we're supposed to take away I don't from think it. But there is, yeah, yeah. It's it's just a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff, 
And that it's one of the reasons why I love Lars. Like, his movies are meaty. And I think that if you think he's a sexist asshole, you're right. And I think that if you think that his movies portray the journey of women, you're also right. Because I, I think his films are as complex as feminism is. And, yeah, it's just... I love him to death. His, his movies are meaty and smart and love him or hate him. He doesn't make dumb movies. I'm not going to say I enjoyed watching it. But I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy it either. Yeah. Like, it's a real head scratcher, which ultimately I like. <laughs> and, you know, I wanted to pick a l- something a little bit more chipper after, uh, uh, you know, there's something about Kevin. Yeah, you're really gunning for the downers. <laughs> do you know what I'm going through in my life, Matt? I know you do. I'm not going to tell listeners because I don't share my personal things. That's a Patreon upper tier. But yeah, I mean, good pick. (laughs) I guess. Oh, I love that. That was excellent delivery there. (laughs) Hard watch. Again, two two for two this season, Matt. Two hard watches. (laughs) But, you know, I, 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 I fulfilled the requirements of the assignment, though, right? Yeah, after a minute, I was like, this isn't meta. And then it was. And so, fine. Good job. (laughs) High five, bro. Uh, uh, Okay, I'm going to shift gears radically for next week, if that's okay with you. Yeah, go for it. What are we going to do, like Coneheads or something, or Wayne's (laughs) World? I'm going feel good, sort of. Documentary, woman director. Can you guess? Uh, no I know you hate her And you think that she's a terrible director But we're doing Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell Oh yeah No I saw that movie That <laughs> is to say I've seen it Yeah it's fine What does her dad have dementia or something It's a meta documentary Matt My favorite I'll save it for next week but a, a meta documentary is like the laziest and easiest thing to do in the world. Ooh, I'm really excited to find out. Because all you got to do is start making the documentary a, a, about the making of the documentary. And, oh, you're meta all of a sudden. Okay. Well, I think this one's a little better than that. But, you know. I mean, it might be. I, I saw the movie in theaters. I haven't seen it since. So maybe it is mm-hmm. better than. Did you I hate remember. it then? No, I don't remember hating it. I, I remember enjoying it but not being oh my god okay well maybe this time watching it think about it in a meta context and think about how every uh, i'll save it for next week i'll save it for next perfect 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 let's just uh plug our patreon and get the fuck out of here patreon.com slash x-rated movies to get all of our bonus content maybe we'll name our tiers maybe we'll name our tiers after levels of hell I think you going to say, maybe we'll name our tiers after subscribers. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's fun. But you're like, let's name them after levels of hell. You're the one who picked Lars Van Trier for this episode. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, X-Rated Movies. Follow us on Facebook. 
rated X movies. Check out our website, xratedmovies.com. And shoot us an email, x.rated.movies at gmail.com. Right on. So thank you for your fun <laughs> meta pick. Yeah. Matt. <laughs> Next week. This we... is this is what happens when you, you guide the ship. Yeah, you're 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 two for two this season. Can't wait to see what you got coming up. <laughs> They're real uh, soul crushers. <laughs> uh-huh. Anyway, uh, next week we'll we'll see you with stories, stories we tell. Yeah, great. Bye bye.